You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I finished my conversation in part two of this two-part series with Matthew Pippenberg. We finished talking about the current risks in the market and some of the opportunities that may lie ahead. Matthew is the co-founder of Signals Matter and co-author of the book Rig to Fail. He has over 20 years of experience in investing, alternative assets, and finance with expertise in managed futures, credit, and equity investing. We pick up exactly where we left off part one last week, and so we will begin today's discussion by talking about how millennials deal with the psychological battle of dealing with FOMO, the fear of missing out. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. So how do millennials specifically, or newer investors in general, fight that FOMO you know, feeling that they're having. And the reason I bring this up is because it's one of the things that is almost bugging me the most about this whole stock market situation mm-hmm. is that there were people who saw the, the market crash 30, 40%. They've never been invested in the market. They, or they saw uh, Carnival Cruise Lines. That was the most common one I saw. Oh my God, it's down 70, 80%. I need to jump in. And I saw so many people do that. And then sure, it maybe was oversold or you know whatever the reason might be. The Fed came in and propped it up, bailouts, things like that made it skyrocket, essentially. And now these people think they're extremely smart. And now, obviously, I know that this is going to come back and hurt them in the long run. But how do people avoid that situation? And even more recently, as we record this, if you've been watching Hertz at all, they filed bankruptcy and they're up over 800% in a very short time period. People like what I just explained come in, buy it, and then FOMO takes over and they just keep buying. How can people who are newer investors who see all these other people making so much money, how do they avoid that fear of missing out? Well, that's a great question. And you know, Hertz is another just fascinating example of the rational markets and, and carnivals. But as you were talking about millennials in particular, or you use that example of carnival or even Hertz. I don't think in, in some ways I have to tip my hats to millennials. I think in some ways, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they're a little more cynical than my generation during the dot-com bubble. They've learned a little bit. They've informed themselves. They have a lot more distrust of their government, of their central banks, of their politicians, left or right. I think millennials are a little more independent thinking. That can be dangerous, but can also be really, really cool and really effective. For example, if they saw a bottom in Carnival or they saw a buying opportunity in Hertz, in some ways, I have to applaud them for at least buying low, right? And you're saying, but they're going to get crushed. I think they will get crushed if they don't get out. You know, you, the key to a good, successful trader, not an investor, a trader, and I've invested with a lot of good hedge funds. And they've, one rule I've learned from managers better than me is don't get emotional. You let your victories run and you, let your, you cut your losses short. In other words, if a stock goes against you, get out quickly. You don't marry it. You don't stay with it. If it's going against you, get out. Don't try and wait for it to bounce back. I've seen people do this in oil trades that have been it's just horrific. But when you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you buy Carnival or Hertz and it's going up 20, 30, 40%, ride it. Ride it until it makes a severe correction and then just get out. Don't be a greedy pig. What's the joke? I mean, Bulls and bears survive, pigs get slaughtered. I mean, if, if you were lucky to get, you know, Carnival or Hertz at a discount and you rode the trend, well, fine. But at what point do you get out? And some the, the greedy investors, it's never enough. They just want more and they want more and they usually get slaughtered. 
I think the key to your carnival or Hertz example is, look, if you were smart to get into the bottom, be smart to just take your profits. Don't keep looking for more unless you have a high, high conviction. One example I was talking about was oil. I mean, oil is a very different type of asset than stocks and bonds. And I don't think, I don't know if we'll get the oil at $100 a barrel, but when you saw oil at those lows, that was just a great buying opportunity, even if it went lower. Even if you bought it at 15 and it went to 12, or you bought it at 20 and it went to 18. One thing I think we can all agree on, at some point, oil will have to go up. I'm not saying it'll go to $100 a barrel, but this Cold War between Russia and Saudi Arabia, that'll end with the oil. That oil fight will somehow end because Saudi Arabia as a nation can't survive on oil prices this low. So something will get, even a war in the Middle East would create oil price go. You don't need to know what catalyst will be, but when you see an asset like oil hit an all-time low, it's just a great buying opportunity. And it's the same with certain stocks. But what I'm seeing in most cases is there aren't a lot of stocks you can buy low. But during that dip, as you mentioned, Robert, there were some chances for smart people. And I think millennials with my God, when I was a, when I was in my 20s, I didn't have an iPhone to check stock prices on it at the grocery store or in the car. Everywhere you go, you can look at the stock prices. In a lot of ways, millennials are so much more ahead of this. They're looking at good apps. They're seeing good sinks. They saw those bottoms. And if they had the money to invest, whether it was $100 or $1,000, go for it. And uh, my son does that. He's on, he's on his phone checking more than I ever did when I was a portfolio manager. And I think that's a huge advantage for, for millennials. The other thing, millennials like my daughter, have the time to wait for a bottom. And if, and if you don't want to wait for a bottom, then you can look for dips and you can buy those dips. And what we saw in March was a major dip, right? And, but the key is knowing when to get out as well as when to get in. That's not, it's often easier said than done, but you got to pick your profit targets and take your, take your profits, just like you have to have your stop losses and get out when something's going against you. It's funny that you bring up smartphones and the access we have to information and technology today. Because that makes me think about a question that I ponder myself a lot. And I kick myself almost every time I think about it because I'm so ingrained in a Warren Buffett style type investing. So I know the answer to this question myself. But I'm curious to hear your opinion. And that question is, could this time be different? And the reason I say that is because could technology have actually changed the way that investing is happening these days? And when I think about this, I think, well, back in even 2008, even, or even before that, you know, every crash before that, they didn't have the technology that we do today. They didn't have the access to trading that we do today, or even information, or even education. I mean, there's people, millennials, who log on the internet and they can read five articles about how people bought the last dip and they got super rich. So now, anytime something goes down 10, 15, 20%, they jump in. Of course, it's a supply and demand thing. So if you have all these people jumping in at those rates, eventually the prices are going to rise. So I wonder to myself sometimes, could it be different now because of technology? Could we not see that big drawdown? Because anytime that happens, could it just be artificially bought up by people jumping in? That's a great question. There's so many layers to that. I think one thing I think you may or may not know, first of all, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think it is very different to be in your late 20s, early 30s today than it was for me and my first hedge funder in the dot-com bubble. Very different time, very different sense of over-information, misinformation, not enough information. Millennial comfort with data and the ability to sift quickly through data and make quick decisions is very different than my generation. We were still kind of like our parents in the old stock market and the old Dow and that old faith. And yet we were edgy during the dot-com bubble when Microsoft and Juniper were coming out and you know, these IPOs, we thought we were a new normal, a new generation, but we were a lot more like our parents. My children and, and, and you know, the millennials are a little more savvy than we were. That said, 
the market that you're trading in today, and it was somewhat true as when I started in 2000 but, or 1999, but I was talking to a portfolio manager in, in Texas the last few weeks. And he's a very successful businessman and a portfolio manager who made millions and millions of dollars. And he's got an MIT professor and a bunch of quant geniuses on his team. And he's all about algorithmic trading, rapid fire trading, trading driven by software, artificial intelligence. I'm simplifying what he has. It's really quite extraordinary. But what he told me at one point, which I couldn't believe, but I knew it was true. For example, I already knew that 70 to 80% of the, of the trades on the market every day are driven by quant trades or algorithms or computers, not by homo sapiens, just you know, like mom and dad buying their JCPenney stock in the 90s or 80s. Those days are done. Even the pension funds that buy those ETFs or stocks, the actual rotation of those stocks in the market is constantly being traded by these algos. He said something that was extraordinary. That the average stock on the S&P's holding period is less than three seconds. Even if you own something, it's being retraded constantly by these, I call them Terminator markets, like the Schwarzenegger movie. It's, it's a robot market. I mean, literally the preponderance of the market is algo-driven, not just high-frequency trades, but literally AI-driven, computer-driven. And you see that even on that movie, on that show, Billions, you've got that one character who plays a quant manager. She's the quant. And then Axelrod is the this kind of crazy guy, but she's a quant. She's all science. She's all Cartesian, MIT thinking. And the truth is that really is the nature of this market. And you're saying, is this time different because AI and quant and algo and softwares? Well, that's the thing I think is the real opportunity, but massively the risk. Because if you have a Terminator market like that Schwarzenegger character, it has no emotion. It has a job, right? It sees signals. It has an agenda. An algorithm, quant-driven, trend-driven, momentum-driven market those AI softwares are going to buy every dip because they've been rewarded for the last 12 years to buy every dip because the Fed has this massive put on the market, this big airbag. And so computers, and I'm simplifying, don't have the human concern about Jay Powell's intelligence or lack of intelligence, desperation or confidence. They just look at markets being supported year after year after year by Fed policy. That same Terminator that is your friend in a bull run when the Fed is buying bonds, keeping because the Fed is buying bonds, yields are coming down. The, the algorithms are seeing low yields. They're seeing low interest rates. They're thinking it's a bull market. They're thinking it's a good economy because that's what those signals mean. But if there's a sell-off in the market for any number of possible triggers, which I'll never predict, those same computers that are your friends in a bull market are going to get sell signals, massive sell signals. And they're going to sell off just as fast as they sold up. And again, it only takes one period of a massive sell-off to erase all your gains for years. You can't spend your life waiting for that sell-off, but you have to have some type of risk management. And I think what is different this time around, really different, is the very nature of supply and demand, value investing, balance sheets, financial statements. A lot of that stuff, I sound like I'm simplifying, really just don't matter. The balance sheet of Tesla has nothing to do with the price of Tesla. And you know it's a growth stock, and maybe Elon Musk will radically change cars the way Ford did, or the way you know Steve Jobs did telephones, or maybe he doesn't. But it doesn't matter whether it's Tesla or some horrible tech stock on the Russell. If there's enough momentum behind that stock, it will go up regardless of its financials, regardless of its debt covenants, regardless of its loaded balance sheet. So that is more exaggerated today than it was even during the dot com bubble that I came to see valuations like this and to see markets go up. 
And it's easy to be bullish as markets are going up and bearish when they're going down. I think what you have to be is neither a bull nor bear. Just look at the signals as best you can, but it's getting very hard to track these signals in an AI-driven stock market. And that's true from Sweden to San Francisco. And there's a lot of computerized trading going on. I do think you know this time is different, but that's a blasphemy in the stock market. It is different, but at the same time, it isn't because at the end of the day, I do think natural market forces still matter. Price discovery still matters. I do think supply and demand matters. And I think the Fed has distorted that for a long, long time. And rig to fail, I talk about that really not just in the last 10 or 12 years, but the last 30 to 50 years. Certainly since 1987, when Greenspan came in, the Fed has completely distorted natural market forces. Whenever there's a problem, there's always a money printer that it can fix or an interest rate adjustment it can fix. But I don't think that's a sustainable thing. But, so I don't think this time is different. I think they can extend and pretend that this is a recovery a lot longer than in the past because they've gotten more desperate. I don't think even Greenspan would have printed this much money or even Bernanke as Powell has done, but I could be wrong. But I do think what's different about your generation is your central bank has gone way over the top to avoid a recession. And by doing so, they're just postponing the pain, as I see it, to come Guys like, you know, legends like Bill Martin or Paul Volcker would have never printed this much money. They would have just let, they would have taken away the punch bowl, the steroids, the cocaine, whatever you want to call it, the stimulus. They would not have allowed Wall Street to get this central to the economy. They would not allow the stock market to become this much of a part of our economy. They would have allowed a recession. Eisenhower would have allowed a recession. I don't think the current central banks or regimes, Republican or Democrat, are willing to tell the truth about the debt we're in. And the risk we're in, I think eventually the markets will reflect that one way or the other. But again, not here to time it. I, I do think there are things people can do to prepare. That's all. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. 
Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. You've mentioned it a few times, the TV show Billions. I love that show as well. One of my favorites and uh, goes along with a lot of things we're talking about here. So it's a great show to, to go check out if you're interested in the type of stuff we talk about here on the show. Do you think that the Fed would have jumped in and propped up the stock market like it did if this crash in the market wasn't caused by COVID-19, if it was just a natural economic cycle, natural business cycle that caused the stock market to crash, do you think that they would have still stepped in like they did with COVID? I think COVID is very unique in so many ways. I think it gives the Fed a great hall pass. It gives an administration a great hall pass to take on more extreme measures because no one can be blamed for doing the morally right thing, right? You had to shut down businesses and the economy. And because you did that for their public safety, then you, of course, had to take on massive deficit spending at the fiscal level. And of course, at the monetary part level, you had to print trains of dollars. And no one can point the finger at you for being excessive because radical, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And so you have these SBA loans and CARE Acts. And, and of course, it's, it, is the, it is hard to argue with the need for that. But I think if you look more carefully at the microscope of where a lot of that printed money went in the repo markets in particular, which I don't want to get into a definition of the repo markets, but the repo markets are a Wall Street's bank-based market for interloan banks. And they were getting $150 billion of printed money a day for a period there. Now, the repo market bailout continues and it's off the radar of the financial media. And again, Main Street investors wouldn't know this. I wouldn't know this if I was a Main Street, but I... As a finance guy, I, I see what's going on in the, in the repo markets. And suffice it to say that it's massively Wall Street biased. And even these massive monetary stimulus programs, the printing of trillions of dollars, that primarily is dedicated towards the bond market. So it is more of a Wall Street and bank bailout than it is a Main Street bailout. I'm not trying to disparage these loans and PPL loans and other loans that are helping Main Street America, but the truth is, as always, the bulk of the, of the benefit went to the markets. And it's really not even the stock market. When people talk about the S&P and the Dow and the NASDAQ, that makes the headlines. But the real, in my opinion, the real market, and it's true of Wall Street, the, the varsity market, not the JV market, the varsity market is the bond market. Everything hinges upon the bond market because the bond market determines interest rates. And Without getting really, really technical, interest rates again are the cost of debt, right? And if the cost of debt is low, you can have massive amounts of debt and still get by. If the cost of debt is high, the party's over. And the Fed is terrified of rising rates. And rates rise when bond prices go down. It's just, it's an inverse relationship between bond prices and interest rates or bond prices and yields. And so the Fed is terrified of rising rates and rising yields. And the only way to prevent that is to keep buying bonds, whether it's obviously U.S. treasuries, but now even corporate and junk bonds, because they don't want to see a panic in the bond market 
because then the Fed can't control the bond market in the same way. Unless they buy those bonds, those books in your uncle's garage, so to speak, those best-selling books, if they don't buy those bonds, nobody else will. And since we're a debt-driven economy, the Treasury has to keep issuing IOUs or bonds every day because we are driven by debt, not GDP. So we need to issue bonds and we need to have somebody buy those bonds. So our rich Uncle Fed will buy those bonds, keep the prices artificially up, and therefore interest rates and yields artificially down. And the question is, how long can we keep printing hundreds of billions a week a day, bailout repo markets and bond markets? If we're waiting for natural growth to come back, simply mathematically too late for that now. And so I think what really we're seeing is COVID. I wrote an article about this a couple of weeks ago. The best thing that happened to Wall Street in the last five years was COVID-19 because it gave a huge fire hose of liquidity to the stock and bond markets, and in particular, the treasury markets and the repo markets, which may sound esoteric, but those treasury markets and repo markets are the grease that keep interest rates low and liquidity going and keep the stock market driven by debt. Because every company on that stock market, or the vast majority of them, are using debt to stay alive. Low interest rates is what keeps them alive, and that allows them to roll over debt, buy back their own stocks, and issue dividends to look to look healthier than they really are. All of that starts and ends with interest rates in the bond market. So what the Fed is doing is bailing out the bond market, and by doing so, they're also bailing out the stock market. And that again can continue for longer than you might think is rational. But I do think whether it's 1793 France or Venezuela or Turkey or Greece or Spain or Italy, it's the same thing in the US. Whenever you have that much debt and you fake it for that long, at some point, you, the music stops and you're, you don't have a chair. And I think we're going to run out of printed money to solve every problem at some point. And we just have to watch the yields on the 10-year treasury and the bond markets and how long the American markets and the American investors and the American people are going to put up with this much money printing. I mean, if I went to your Citibank account and you had $100 and I simply said, look, I've got a software I can log in. I'm going to add five zeros to your $100. You're an instant multimillionaire. And that's exactly what the Federal Reserve does when it prints money. It simply literally goes into the Eccles building on Constitutional Ave and starts adding zeros to the balance sheet. It's amazingly that simple. If it's too good to be true, it is. And I don't think that's a sustainable solution. I think anyone who actually takes them in to think about it already knows that really deep down. But in the meantime, it's a, it's a keg party, right? The markets are ripping. Bond markets are being bailed out and, and supported artificially, and that indirectly supports the stock market until it doesn't. And that's the million-dollar question you start with. How long can they keep doing this? Yeah, that's a good point to make because I think printing money is a little bit of a misnomer. You know, Back in the yeah. day, they did actually have to print money, but today they just log into a computer. It's all electronic and there's no actual oh. money printing happening. They're just adding more zeros to the account, like you said. But if there's potentially upside here, is it worth having a piece of your portfolio invested or even a substantial portion, maybe 50, 60, 70%? Is it worth maybe trying to trade the market? So you know, you understand long term there might be some issues, but kind of like we saw in this last downturn, maybe you jump in, get 15, 20%, try to not get greedy, say, hey, mm-hmm. I'll take my earnings and I'll protect my yep. downside here. Is there an opportunity for that, or should people just try and sit on the sidelines until there's a really a better buying opportunity? Yeah, I think it's a great question. There's, first of all, there's, and this is Pollyanna, but there's always opportunity. It, you know, there's always opportunity, long or short, in any market cycle. If you're if you're watching carefully, and if you're a trader, that's different than if you're an investor. Traders who trade in and out of positions quickly 
they'll see opportunities. I would never say go 100% to cash because and just wait for the bottom because you can be waiting for years, right? But I also would never say be 100% all in at a market top because you could lose 40 to 50% in a matter of weeks. And that's very hard to get back once you're down 40 to 50%. The question is, how do you ride that clutch and have just the right amount of cash, the right amount of invested? A lot of it depends on your, your skill, your appetite, your risk profile. That's a generic answer, but it's true. It also depends on your age. I mean, let's face it. If, if you put in a chunk of money and lose 50% at your age, it hurts. It sucks. It's painful, but it's not going to ruin you. If you're, and I know your, your audience is younger, but if you're talking to people like I do who are in their 70s, who've had a whole lifetime of work, and now there are retirements in the markets, they can't afford to lose 50% at age 70 or 75 and hope that it V-shape recovers back and hope that the Fed bails it out. The Fed might this time, maybe the next time. What about the third time? What if there really is a loss that doesn't come back? And then you really are in deep pain. And then the only thing you can rely on is the government to send you checks or print money to bail that out. But remember, well, you don't remember because you're younger, but I was in high school when the Nikkei crashed in 89. Actually, I was just in college. The Nikkei, I remember even as a young lawyer, Japan was the rising sun. The, the Nikkei was like the NASDAQ in the 2000 bubble. No one thought it could go down. Just like now, it's just too good to be true. But the Japanese economy, the Japanese market was driven by debt, extreme debt in the 80s. And then it totally tanked in 1989. That was 30 years ago. And the market in Japan, whatever you think of it, has still not recovered its highs after 30 years. Now, if you're a 70 year old investor today and you're down, 80% like the Nikkei was, and it still hasn't recovered, and you're 70, your retirement's over, you're looking at a very different life. If you're a millennial and you lose 80%, you have time to rebuild, recover, sleep on a couch at a friend's, go to your parents, whatever. But there are some people who can't afford to take that risk. There are others who can. And to your point, there is no magical number to say how much cash you should be in. We have a very specific number on our, our site, but because we track risk, and for every percentage point of risk, we add percentage point of cash. We hedge with cash for now. But that's just based on our signals. If you've got a higher risk, you could instead of being 40% or 50%, you could be 20% in cash. But if you're if you're younger and you're a little more informed, yeah, I would say if you have that risk, go for it. But just always be aware of that downside risk. Right now the downside risk is higher than the upside risk, even in this rising market, because of the fundamentals. When earnings come out of the next quarter, I don't know how many banks can hold on to a lot of those stocks with earnings that low. They're going to sell. When banks sell or institutions or hedge funds sell, the market sells fast. We're going to see a lot of volatility, up and down swings. And that's a really hard market to trade unless you're looking at it every day. It just is. But there'll always be bottoms and dips to buy, but those dips can keep dipping and keep dipping. And that's the problem. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Say here on the show that stocks can always go lower. Just because they've fallen a lot, they can always go lower. And that's what I was telling people about Carnival Cruise Lines. To go back to that example was, I got so many texts, should I buy Carnival Cruise Line or direct messages? And I said, listen, I don't invest that kind of way, so I can't give you an answer. But just remember one thing that I've learned. I'm young, but I've been investing for 10 years. What I've learned is stocks can always go lower. So just keep that in mind, make your own decision. A lot of what we've talked about so far today has been very doom and gloom, if you will. Let's turn that a little bit. How do you propose Main Street investors prepare for all phases of a debt-driven market cycle and securities bubble, including the recovery and subsequent melt-up phase to the brutal meltdown phase that consistently follows? I think one thing that they can do is they can smell test and reality check their own advisors, unless they're self-advising or they're self-educated, which is great too. I think if you're, if you're an autonomous investor who's not going to go to Wells Fargo or Ed Jones or Goldman Sachs, I get it. If you're really going to be an investor on your own, the way to prepare is you don't have to be doom and gloom. You don't have to be waiting for a bottom forever. But I do think you have to respect risk and not just think of... I think too many people look at the market as a casino, like a blackjack table, and they're, they're going to roll the dice and hope for the best and do a little research and look at some trend lines and try and make 20% here and there. And I think they're looking at return only. I think if you want to be successful, you have to think of risk first, whatever your profile, whatever your style of investing look at the downside first before you commit to something. Make sure you can afford the loss. And that's a very individual question for each person. 
We have a more formulaic approach. It's more all weather and it's kind of not sexy. It just outperforms the market, but it's very slow and steady. I think if you're younger and you're impatient, you're looking for that carnival or even that Hertz trade. Like, you know, we can laugh at it, but it actually made sense, right? It was a bottom, it was an opportunity. I did the same with oil, I did it with some other stocks, and I don't regret it because I also can afford to lose some of that money. But when you're talking about 401ks or to find benefit plans at your office, or if you're talking about a retirement account, you want to be a lot more careful, especially if you're older. But again, that's why it's nice talking to your audience because I was young too when I started my first fund and we took tons of risk, tons of risk, and it paid off until the market crashed in 2003 and 80% of it was gone. Luckily, really more luck than skill, but a little common sense. I knew already by February of 2000 that that market was just too risky and I got out. And I've written about that experience. I've done a a video from Reykjavich on that because their markets had crashed in Iceland. But I, I don't ever forget how lucky I felt. And yet I also knew this is not going to last. And there was, believe me, up until April of 2000, when that first bubble that I went through, no one thought the markets were going to go down. It was just like today. You know, come on. It's a new normal. It's the new thing. It's, it's the internet of things. And there was a lot of reasons to believe that. It just was unsustainably long in the tooth and the valuations were too high. And of course, I didn't time it perfectly, but I got out a few months before it tanked. I missed a couple months of 10, 15% returns, but I didn't care at that point. I'd made enough in my mind. For me, the risk was too high. I think that's where we are today. And I could be months or years off, and I have been, but I've also been right a lot too. And so is Tom. And I think if you're right more than you're wrong, it's because you're looking at the right signals and you're going to be wrong. There's the best managers I've ever seen have gotten things wrong. But when they're wrong, they're, they're missing small. They're, they're not taking huge losses. If you're going to do that carnival trade or that Hertz trade, just make sure it's not your full, full cash, you know, your full amount of money. It's just common sense. I think position sizing, concentration risk, leverage risk, timing risk, those are the biggest risks. Timing, concentration, and leverage. That's what burns people every time. Too much in one asset or too much leverage or thinking they can time it perfectly and nobody can. So you just hedge your own your own character sometimes. And I think there'll be a great short opportunity too. The biggest short of our lives, the biggest short will come, but not until the Fed caves, really caves, where the faith is gone. And measuring faith in the Fed and when that ends is impossible right now, although we're seeing signs of it. The very fact that my kids and even myself on my iPhone are getting little memes that are making fun of money printers and Powell, that would have never happened two years ago, three years ago. People are catching on. Uh, they're catching on that something just doesn't smell right anymore. This isn't going to last. Yeah, we might be seeing the script to the big short two being written right now. Who knows? The people that have been listening to the show, my show for a while, they'll know that we had Preston Pish on the show and they'll know that we also had Pomp not too long ago as well. And we talked about what this next topic that I'm going to bring up is. And they'll know that they're very bullish on that. And they'll know if they listen to We Study Billionaires or follow Preston at all, they'll know that he's very bullish on this is a solution. I'm no expert by any means, so I don't have all the answers. I'm really still working to understand it myself. But a lot Mm -hmm. of people are talking about how Bitcoin is the solution to a lot of the fiscal and monetary policy issues that you've talked about throughout this episode. How do you see Bitcoin playing into the current financial situation we're experiencing? I started off being really critical of Bitcoin years ago and was dead wrong. I saw it as just a tulip kind of revolution, just a crazy bubble. And it just reminded me like John Law at 1720. I was like, this is insane. My attitude has changed a lot. I mean, Bitcoin's up 26, 27% this year for a reason. I think what's really telling about Bitcoin, and you know, I'm name dropping, but I, I know the Winklevi twins from my rowing days and my youth. And 
I tell you, I'm so happy for them because I saw them get posed by Facebook and to see them go through Facebook and then get onto Bitcoin in the same lifetime. I mean, these guys are pretty charmed. It's an incredible story. I mean, twice in one lifetime to go through two massive trades like that. But I think I'm happy for them and I'm happy for Cameron and Tyler. But I think Bitcoin is a very telling symptom of your generation's loss of faith in your currency and in your central banks. Whether you know it or not, you guys maybe overtly or covertly know that you don't believe in the US dollar. You don't believe in the system. And that's why digital currency in general and Bitcoin in particular are very popular. And I do think there is going to be a revolution towards digital currency. To sit here and poo-poo digital currency is, is, a, is naive and arrogant. And I think we have to accept that some permutation of Bitcoin or maybe Bitcoin itself is going to be a very valuable asset without getting all the things that I don't understand about Bitcoin in terms of other risks inherent in the system. But I think what Bitcoin is trying to say is we are a store of value, unlike the US dollar that has a fixed supply, a fixed amount, and it's going to work on what the markets were supposed to work on, which is natural supply and demand. And we are going to be here longer than the US dollar or the peso or the pound sterling or the yuan. And it's a brilliant, brilliant concept. And I remember telling these guys when they came out with Bitcoin, I believe in you because I don't believe in the Fed. That's what I like about Bitcoin. Personally, and I have, I'll, I'll caveat this by saying I have a vested interest. I'm, I'm, very, I'm not a gold bug. I'm hardly a coin collector, but I am a big fan of big gold investing and you know Swiss vaults and all that. I do that. And I do that professionally and personally because I too have no faith in, in the US dollar or the euro or other currencies. That doesn't mean I put every dollar that I have in a Swiss vault. But I do think with high conviction, and it's just also high, it's just mathematically based. The purchasing power of the dollar has gotten weaker every year and gold has gotten stronger. Not, I don't care about the price of gold in terms of speculation, whether it goes from 1250 to 750 to 3000. The price of gold is certainly what everyone talks about. What is undeniable is the relative value of gold as a store of value vis-a-vis the dollar or any other currency continues to get higher every, every year consistently. And so without being a gold bug, I look at gold as, an, as fire insurance on a house that's already on fire and, and relatively cheap. And I, again, I wouldn't recommend you put everything you have in gold or silver. Gold to me versus Bitcoin, Bitcoin's been around you know, 10 years or less. Gold's been around for 5,000 years. I know Warren Buffett laughs at it, says it has no value. It's just a barbaric relic of the past. That said, from what I see and in flows into physical gold in Swiss accounts and in bullion banks and in family offices, the old money, the real money, the European money that I look at or represent, they're big into gold for a reason. Not because they're suckers or because they care about the price of gold. And I think that's the same thing about Bitcoin. Both gold and Bitcoin are basically a middle finger to central bank policy. It's it's what it is. And I was saying I was reading a book on the Battle of Gettysburg, and you know you need infantry and you need cavalry to win a battle. I don't think it's about gold versus Bitcoin. I think it's about gold and Bitcoin. And your generation may choose Bitcoin. My generation, my kind of conservative European American view is. I just trust gold more. It's been around a lot longer. And if you can hold it the right way, not COMEX paper gold because the derivatives have ruined the value of it, but real physical gold, if you've got that kind of wealth, groups like Matterhorn Asset Management in Zurich that I'm affiliated with, I just think that it's brilliant. And I think the smart money has been going there. And I was listening to Grant Williams and Ronnie Sturfla out of Austria, who just did a brilliant 
a report called In Gold We Trust. It's 350 pages. It's in Mandarin, German, and English. But it's just such a fact-based, compelling case for gold. But at the end of the day, whether it's gold or Bitcoin, and I think even Ronnie Sturfler would agree that, that he's, he's not against Bitcoin just because he likes gold. I mean, I think you can like both. I personally lean towards gold, but I'm not poo-pooing or laughing at Bitcoin buffs because I think Bitcoin is just about to have another revolution. And I think it's because Bitcoin is in some ways safer than the US dollar longer term. It's going to be a volatile trade, but I no longer make fun of Bitcoin the way I did two or three years ago. For a few minutes of that explanation, I felt like I was talking to Preston Pish. It felt very similar to a lot of the things he was saying. And when you talked about how your opinion on Bitcoin changed, I, I laughed to myself a little because that's exactly how I was. I forget exactly when it was, but it was late 2016 or early 2017 during a lot of the craze. I wrote two articles and they actually went kind of viral. And I look back on them now and I kind of cringe because I'm like, oh man, was I wrong? Or I just didn't understand it. And even in that article, I called it just like you said, the tulip craze of today. For anyone that wants to, l- to learn more about how Bitcoin could potentially solve a lot of the issues that we've talked about throughout this episode, go back and listen to the two-part episodes that I did with Preston Pish and Pomp. Those were amazing episodes. I've learned a ton. Like I said, in those episodes, I'm learning with you guys. And these are the types of questions that I ask the, the best minds in Bitcoin. And you guys get to hear the conversation. So if you're interested in that, definitely go back and check that out. And we also had Jim Records on the show on We Study Billionaires to talk about gold. So if you want to hear about the gold side of things, go check out those episodes with Jim Records and, and potentially check out his books as well. You'll be able to get a lot of great information about Bitcoin and gold from, from those sets of episodes. So I highly recommend you guys go check that out. We've been talking for quite a while now, and we had a set guide before the, the show, and we had about 10 questions that we were going to run through. And I think we made it through four of them uh, that we had planned. <laughs> so there was just yeah. a great conversation, a lot of really good information that we talked about. I think the audience is going to really love it. I know it's given me a lot to think about and a lot to even go study more than I already do. So thank you so much for your time. Where can oh. the audience go to learn more about you? Thanks for asking. I mean, you know, I have a website with my colleague, Tom Lott, called Signals Matter. That's just signalsmatter.com. And you don't have to be a subscriber. Most of the content is free. I think for your generation, you can just stick to the free side because there's a section on there called market reports. And you know, I, there's three a week. I talk about bonds, stocks, currencies, repo markets, digital currencies, precious metals. But you know, I'm a real geek for this stuff now. And, and I think if you just want to look at my views on any topic, just go on the search bar and type in a keyword. You'll probably find it. There's about three years of stuff there. So that's just under the market report section on signalsmatter.com. And look, if you read ebooks, there's the rig to fail ebook, or you can get a paperback version of the book. We're not in it for the money on the book. We tried to get it for free for the ebook, but they made us have a minimum, I think, 99 cents for that. But you know, you can get a you can get the ebook on Amazon, obviously. But Signals Matter is uh, our website, and and if you're really interested in what goes on behind the curtains, how we look at cash allocations and how we go long or short for portfolios. It's not a day trading site. It's really for portfolios. It's more for older investors. But if they're younger investors doing 401ks at their offices and want to just do a smart portfolio on the back end of the site, but that's a subscription model. That's a little expensive. But I think what's free is, is more than enough to get a good sense of how we look at the markets and you can educate yourself there. And we really do, at this point in our lives and our financial lives, we really just want to educate and inform as many people as we can. I'll be sure to put a link to Matt's website, signalmatter.com, and the book in the show notes. So if you guys are interested in checking that out, feel free to click the link in the show notes below. And I'll also put links to 
my two-part series is with Preston and also Pomp. And then I'll also put the Jim's Records book in the show notes and just all kinds of other resources that you guys can use to read up on everything that we talked about in the show. So if you guys are interested in learning more, be sure to check all that out in the show notes. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, Robert. Thanks again. It was really a real pleasure. Thank you. All right, guys. So that wraps up part two of this two-part series with Matthew Pipenberg. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I learn from all of our guests and I always enjoy the conversations, but this conversation really got me thinking and has me studying a lot, even more than I was before. I hope you all learned a lot from the conversation like I did, and I'll see you all again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.